one time in my life where I don't have anything more than two choices. It is literally the definition of elimination of choice. I jump out of that plane and I have two options and only two options. I can choose to live or I can choose to die. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work from transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Our guest today, in what is the first ever episode before it happened, is media entrepreneur, podcast host, and best-selling author, Peter Shankman. Peter was one of the founding editors of AOL News, helping to catapult the world into the digital media era. He went on to launch and sell a number of businesses, including Geek Factory, one of the earliest PR agencies dedicated to internet startups, and helped a reporter out, a global network that connected journalists to millions of potential sources. These days, Peter still runs several businesses and speaks to corporations about how to better serve and connect with their customers. He's also become known as an advocate for neurodiversity in the workplace and has written extensively about his own life with ADHD, including the best-selling book, Faster Than Normal, which is based on his top-rated podcast of the same name. But this podcast is called Before It Happened. So listen to my conversation with Peter, where he shares his story of how a once socially awkward class clown turned himself into a digital media juggernaut. Peter was born and raised in New York City, where he still is today. His parents were both music professors at NYU, and his father was a Grammy-nominated jazz musician. An only child, Peter says he learned how to scat before he learned how to talk. But it served him well. He attended the prestigious LaGuardia School of Performing Arts, the Fame School, as a vocal major. Though he excelled in music and art courses, Peter struggled in school. This was years before anyone had heard of ADHD, and Peter himself wouldn't be diagnosed for decades. But school was where his struggles with concentration and focus first started to show themselves. Eventually, he would come to see his ADHD brain as a gift. But at the time, more often than not, it landed him in trouble. I would get in trouble all the time in school because I always cracked jokes. And I'd always, I'd make the class laugh. I was the class clown. And only thing that changed after I got diagnosed was I learned that the reason I was the class clown was because in topics that I didn't love, like math, that I was terrible at, 
it was really hard to focus. So how would I, you know, subconsciously, I was, if I knew that if I made the kids laugh, I'd get a dopamine hit from that. What does dopamine do? It helps you focus. I was literally getting in trouble because I was trying to learn. And school was a bitch for me. It was very, very tough to try and fit in. It was difficult. I was better at music and art because everyone was a whack job there. So it was, I, I did better there. But I had the social acuity of a turnip growing up and it was, it was tough. So let's go back to that. So you're in school, you're having a challenging time, but you advanced yourself to college. So how was that transition without knowing that you had ADHD? So I went to Boston University and I always knew I had dyslexia. And so I was able to get into, you know, extended time and tests, prep help and things like that. But BU had a, f- a phenomenal program called the College of Basic Studies. It's now the College of General Studies because I guess it, they, realized, they realized how stupid basic studies sounded. Like, you know, you go to learn to tie your shoes and stuff. But I went, it was a two-year core curriculum. At the end of your sophomore year, assuming you get through this ridiculously hard core curriculum, you are automatically advanced into the school of your choice. You matriculate as a junior into whatever school you want. So for me, it was college communications. And it was brutal. I was on the anti-deans list, which is the uh, academic probation for the entire four semesters I was at CGS, but they didn't give up on me. They kept pushing me and I got through it. And to go from, you know, then when I got into college communications, I always knew I was a good writer, but it really opened up for me when when I majored in journalism, because going and interviewing public figures and being a reporter came so naturally to me. And you know, asking questions and talking and being curious. This, I'm like, holy crap, I can get paid for this. And I remember that it, it radically changed my life when we'd have a journalism assignment for school and we'd had to go write, we had to write two stories in a week, you know, and I'd, I'd go home and I'd sit down on my Apple, whatever, Macintosh S, SE30, whatever I had. And within five minutes, I'd written both articles and they were perfect. And I'm like, okay, I have a talent here. I have a skill here. I can write. And that translated into learning how to tell stories. So yeah, BU saved me. And I think the cool fact the best part about that was 2015, I was voted or, or I was honored with a Distinguished Alumni Award from BU. And so to go from being on academic probation for two and a half straight years to receiving the Distinguished Alumni Award was, was, was a nice moment. I remember one of the highlights was in 92, Ross Perot was running against Bill Clinton. I got to photograph them when they came to Boston, and that was really exciting. And then in 94... Ross Perot wound up being our graduation speaker. And I was shooting the graduation for the school paper. And I remember I managed to get a picture of Ross Perot as he was coming off. The, and I'm, I'm in my cap and gown. And I managed to get a picture of him as he's coming off stage after giving his speech. And I, actually, the picture's, I believe it's, yeah, it's right there. It's still on my wall. I remember he stops and he goes, he goes, son, why are you wearing a gown, cap and gown, but still covering, you know, st- still taking pictures. I was like, sir, I promised that. I, even though I'm graduating, I promise I'd cover it for the, for the school. He puts his arm around me. This is the kind of man right here that's going to run this country. He's, he's dedicated. He's determined. He's moving forward. And someone from the Boston Globe grabbed a shot of Ross Perot with his arm around me. And it's, I still have that photo to this day. And it, it ran in the paper. And it was, it was amazing. What a great experience. He wasn't holding the chicken, was he? He was not holding the chicken. No. <laughs> <laughs> so right after college, you went on to AOL? Or is there something between politics and AOL? I was in grad school for... Uh, Fashion and portrait photography out in Santa Barbara. I took it. It was about a year and a half graduate course. And with about 18 credits to go, I lost my financial aid. The government said, your parents make too much money, so we're taking away your financial aid. And I said, my parents do make too much money. However, they, uh, they keep it. And the government didn't find that funny. Was that Brooks Institute? Brooks. Yeah, I was at Brooks, actually. So I, I left and I moved back home. And I was hanging out in the Melrose Place TV gossip chat room on AOL. And someone there said, you know, my company's trying to build a newsroom. Why don't you submit your resume? And I went, sure, I have no experience. Uh, I'm sure this will be awesome. Uh, you guys will hire me right on the spot with no experience. This will be perfect. And uh, I learned that sarcasm doesn't translate very well on the internet. And uh, I was moved down to Virginia 
two weeks later, and I, I was one of three founding editors of the AOL Newsroom. So that was a, a really essential time because that's when the you know the digital age was really taking off. AOL was the internet, no question about it. I was so early in the game. I actually I had Peter at AOL.com, which was amazing. I could never use it because everyone was getting on the internet and everyone's like, oh, my friend Peter's on the internet. He must be Peter at AOL.com. And my inbox was always full of misdirected emails. There are some Peters out there doing some really freaky shit. I'll just, I'll leave it at that. But yeah, Steve Case and Ted Leonsis were two of the most incredible mentors to have. I doubt either of them know how much they did for me, but they they radically changed my way of thinking. And then uh, I had a boss in the newsroom named John Barth, who was the head of news at AOL. And he was, he was also a brilliant man. So uh, working at AOL, what was your discovery about your, and this is well before faster than normal, but how did you frame your day in working in that newsroom editorial deadline scenario? I loved it because we were trying to go to a 24 hour format. So I wound up doing a lot of like 8 p.m. to 4 a.m., 8 p.m. to midnight shifts. And for me, I was a total night owl back then. So I loved it. I remember I had covered the Olympics, the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. I'd covered them for like three straight days sleeping in the newsroom. And I finally went home after like the third day and I get home at like 8.45 PM. And I, I remember I crack open a beer and my pager goes off at 9.23 when the Olympic park bombing happened. And I put down the beer, I got right back in the car, drove right back to AOL and spent the next few days covering that. And it was, I didn't realize at the time, but the reason I loved news so much was because it was a dopamine hit. Everything, every breaking news story, every interview, everything I did was a dopamine hit. And that's what I've, what I've craved all my life. And so what wound up happening before I understood my ADHD was I was just finding interesting ways to get it. Thank God I didn't, I didn't go the alternate route where, you know, drugs and alcohol. I kind of did with alcohol a little bit, but I, I've since pretty much quit drinking. But that was sort of the premise was I can't believe that everything makes sense now. Once I got diagnosed, everything made sense, that, that everything I did in my life was looking for that dopamine hit. I remember getting those little discs in the mail every single week. I didn't realize that they were like little dopamine packets coming to me. <laughs> well, think about it. You know, think about this. We live in a society where we know, we're smart enough to understand that texting while driving is bad. Yet 90% of people, when asked under pressure, admit that they do it. And the reason they do it is because every time you get a ding, you get a dopamine hit. It's unreal. It's unreal how addictive that kind of stuff is. We don't think about it. Yeah, that's the fascination with all things digital and, and accessible, right? So how long was your run at AOL? I was there for about just under three years. And then where did you go? Moved back to New York, consulted to the National Hockey League for a year, working for the Devils, helping a bunch of teams launch their dot-coms. And what was that like? It was interesting. It was a nine-to-five, and AOL wasn't. And it was, you know, it was wearing a suit every day, and it was, I didn't love it. I mean, I, there were great people there, but it really wasn't. I didn't fit. And when I left there, I realized that it was definitely time to go out on my own. And why didn't you fit? I don't play well with others. It was a difficult environment in that I don't do well with meetings and teams and you know stuff like that. And, and I was learning that about myself at the time. I didn't know why. Now I do. And so I didn't, that wasn't really my forte. And so I figured out that if I could do things on my own, you know, because I would wind up doing all my work like in the middle of the night. I'd take my computer and I'd do all my work in the middle of the night. And I found that I was doing a lot better. So yeah, I think that for me, that's when I realized, okay, let's try. And I remember I called my mom and I said, I'm, I'm going to go out on my own and I'm going to try to start a PR firm. And when it fails, not if it fails, I said, when it fails, I'll get a job. And it's been like 24 years and I haven't had to get a job. So I'm very, very lucky. So this is Geek Factory. What year is this now? I started Geek Factory in 98. 98, okay. Yeah, well, that hot, right in the smack in the middle of the dot com, right? 
it's almost like, you know, thinking about just all the, the companies that came out of that era. Like what, what companies, and tell us a little bit more about like Geek Factory, like what was your structure and, and who were some of your first clients? We repped Napster. Remember Napster? We repped Napster. We repped Juno. We had about, at one point, 25.com. I'm sure 25 of them are now gone. How big is your team? It's height. We had nine people. And I was, I was a 29-year-old. When I started, I was a 26-year-old, 27-year-old kid running a PR firm and managing nine people and not having a goddamn clue how to do it. And I made it all up as we went along. And it was, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. By the time he was 30 years old, Peter was deeply connected to pretty much everybody in the media and tech worlds. Eventually, his vast network of contacts led to the venture that would put him on the map. So did Harrow spawn out of Geek Factory? No, no. Harrow, so I sold Geek Factory in 2001. I kept the name. I consulted for a couple of years. I launched another startup that got acquired that allowed you to choose your seatmate before you got on the airplane. I was a little too early when I did it. If I did it today, I would back it up into Facebook, back it up into Expedia, you know, and it would have been, I, I launched it about probably 10 years too early, but it was a lot of fun. Lisa Loeb used it on her reality TV show and it exploded. So we had about probably 50, 60,000 users. So like match.com, but for... Pe- exactly. And the number one request that people wanted, they wanted us next to someone who wouldn't talk. That was our number one hit. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, sold that to a bunch of investors, uh, like a private equity firm. And then consulted for several more years, would do occasional PR. And then, you know, I talked to everyone, right? When you're ADHD, you have, you have two speeds, you have namaste and I'll cut a bitch. And so I talked to everyone and just started building this Rolodex without realizing I was building this massive Rolodex. And reporters knew that I had this Rolodex and they'd call me, Peter, I'm doing a story on whatever, you know, everyone, who do you know who could talk about whatever? And after a while, I'm like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And so I created, originally it was a Facebook group. And that led to the formation of Harrow. And um, yeah, it, it blew up beyond my wildest dreams. So I got very, very lucky. I remember David Strom actually told me to go to the Facebook group because he was doing a story. And he said the way, best way to get to me to the story is to go to this group. <laughs> and then I started getting the newsletters. And I had my agency. So I was 10 years into my agency. And I thought, this is brilliant that I actually can not only just proactively pitch, but I have a stream of other opportunities coming to me and the team that we could, you already did the data mining, right? And so these editors at Deadline needing some extra helping hands and to be able to kind of get, you know, stories over the, and I remember sponsoring the newsletters, looking for hiring, went back when in that era we were, we were coming out of the recession. So in 2010, I'm just going to go back to my mind, 2010, Hara was, was acquired. Correct. To Vocus which was the original decision, which before that was MediaMap, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. MediaMap decision to, to focus decision. Yeah. Yeah. So what was that growth, you know, for you, like going from inception, going in Geek Factory to Harrow to now you're, I mean, acquired. I mean, that was a pretty fast acquisition. It was. And, you know, I'll always tell this story. It's my favorite story about the whole process. It took, it probably took about five months from, initial contact to acquisition. If we didn't have lawyers, it would have taken a week. But I remember the announcement was made in DC and I flew home the next morning and I walked into my apartment. I was living on 57th Street at the time. And I remember in the elevator thinking, man, I got money. 
man, I just did this thing. I'm, I'm rich. This is, man, I'm the shit, right? And I remember the first time in my life, I believed my own press. It's the first time in my life. And I walked into my apartment and I had two cats, Karma and Nasa. And they both passed away since. But I remember that Karma or Nasa, one of them, had gotten into, had, had somehow ripped open a 25-pound bag of dry food while I was gone for those 24 hours. And they had both ripped into the bag, eaten as much as they could. And so I walked in and I was greeted with this literal pile of vomit, cat vomit, cat puke. And I spent the first three hours of my life as a multimillionaire cleaning up cat puke. And I remember thinking to myself that this was supposed to happen. And the cat's name is Karma, for Christ's sake, right? This was supposed to happen. This was, this was the universe's way of saying, great job, stay humble. And I have never forgotten that. I really believe that was supposed to happen. That was probably the best lesson those two cats could have ever taught me. So during this time, you still don't know that you have been diagnosed with ADHD. Correct. So, I mean, it's a, it's a huge undertaking to, you know, go from geek crackery to Haro to an acquisition. But what did you learn in that process about yourself that allowed you to become even more hyper-focused as you describe? I think one of the best lessons I ever got, I hired Megan, my assistant. And about a month into her working for me, or two months for her, I remember I, I went to put something in my calendar and a button popped up on the screen. You, you do not have sufficient permissions to do this. I went, what the fuck? What? Something's wrong. I tried again and you do not have spin. I couldn't change it. I said, Megan, what the hell's going on with this computer? I got to call. Gotta call. She said, no, it's working perfectly. I'm like, no, I can't enter anything in the calendar. She's like, right. You no longer have permission to do that. You will, if you want to do something, you will tell me what you want to do. And I will either put it in the calendar or I will find a time when you can do it. I'm like, rude. You work for me. That's not how it works. And she's like, no, that's exactly how it's going to work. Because that is the only way you're going to be to your meetings on time and, and, and not tell a book things. I'm like, why would you say, she goes, Peter, you booked two dinners for next Friday night on the same night. I said, Megan, everyone has made that mistake. That's not me. She goes, no, you booked them on separate continents. You're done. And that was the last time that I was able to enter anything in my calendar in like 14 years. And it's wonderful because the lesson I learned is that I know what I'm good at and I rock, rock what I'm good at. And I know what I suck at and I try to make other people, I let other people do what I suck at because they just do it so much better than I ever could. And so I've always been able to keep multiple plates spinning. It's just the talent I have. But I think one of the things I learned as I got older was it's better, it's easier to do it by bringing in people to do the stuff that you don't like or to do or that you're bad at doing. Rob Lowe said, it's amazing what can be done with proper planning and logistics. And holy shit, I have never heard a more true quote in my life. In everything I do is, and that's the other thing, everything I do has to be planned out and put in a calendar because when you are ADHD, unexpected or unfiltered downtime is probably the worst thing in the world. I used to keynote in person and I'd go to I'd fly to Tokyo. I'd leave on a Tuesday. I'd get there Wednesday night. I'd speak Thursday morning. I'd fly home Thursday afternoon. With the time change, I'd get home Thursday afternoon. And I'd only miss two nights with my kid. I was a zombie, but I only missed two nights with my kid. But that was three days. A speech, a 45-minute speech in Tokyo took three days. Now a 45-minute speech in Tokyo takes 45 minutes and from my living room, which leaves me with three days of having nothing to do, right? And so I have to schedule things, even if it's scheduling an extra workout or scheduling meetings I don't really need to have, but I have to meet with people just to get, you know, otherwise I'm going to sit there and go, okay, well, I got three days to kill. I could start another company or, you know, maybe I could try meth. Or who knows, right? So you, you want to make sure that you're doing things that are the right things to be doing. So did Megan accidentally discover that you had ADHD or did you go through a more formal process? No, I went to a doctor. You know, I had a therapist who I've been seeing for like almost 20 years now. And 
one day he just casually reached up. He goes, you know, so have you ever thought about taking medication for your ADHD? I'm like, what are you talking about? I have ADHD. And he just sort of looks at me. He goes, really? I'm like, I've, I've never been tested. He goes, you kind of don't need to be. But if you want to go get tested, go get tested. And he throws a book at me. It was called Delivered from Distraction by Ned Hallowell. And that book changed my life, right? I mean, I, the first line of the book, having ADHD is paradoxical. You could be, you have all the confidence in the world and feel like you can't do a damn thing. It was 100% accurate, right? It, it, imposter syndrome is real. And so starting to get that understanding about my life just made things so much easier to understand and, 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 to, and to, to realize, okay, I'm not, maybe I'm not a complete fuck up. Maybe there's a logic behind this. And the cool thing is that I realized that over the years I was putting practices in, into play or putting play in practice to do things that would allow me to be better without even realizing it. You know, the elimination of choice. I have two sides to my closet and they're labeled because if I had to go look at that stuff every day, come out of the shower, okay, what should I wear? That sweater, I remember that sweater. Laura gave me that sweater. I wonder how she's doing. I should look her up. You know, it's, it's three hours later, I'm naked in the living room on Facebook and I haven't left the house. There used to be a thing called Garanimals where you'd match up the animals, you know? Oh, yeah. Maybe, yeah, that would work. But it works. I have a uniform and I've learned what works for me. So go back to that moment where you, you did this realization and, and maybe it's really an acceptance versus expectance. It sounds like growing up, a lot of people were expecting things of you, but did you have to go through a process or a period of accepting like, hey, I got ADHD and this is my superpower. How did you embrace that? I think one of the things that happened was I realized that once I had a name for it, okay, I have a name for my thing. It wasn't some radical change. It was rather that I realized that the things I did that were good for me and helped me. And I also realized the things that I did that could put me down the wrong path. I'm fortunate I never really had, growing up, I never really drank. I never drank as a kid. I never drank in college. And I never had one of those moments. But as I get older, you know, I would start, I'd, I'd go out. Clients want to take, want, want to go out with clients, whatever. And I noticed I drank fast, right? I wasn't trying to get drunk. I just drank fast. I did tequila the same way I drank water right? Which is just, it's there. I'm going to drink it. And that posed some problems. And so I never did anything stupid, thank God. But I got to the point where I'm like, you know what? I don't think this is a good idea. I, I don't think the drinking is, is helping me because I drink. Well, then I don't get up and work out. If I don't get up and work out, well, now I've had a shitty day. Next thing I know, it's two months later. I haven't done any of that. I've gained 40 pounds. This is bullshit. I don't want this. And so I quit for a couple of years and, and now I've just drastically cut down. Maybe I'll drink once every three or four months, you know, I'll hang out with some friends, but in a controlled environment, like I'll invite them over and we'll sit in my apartment and we'll have a nice drink, right? I won't go to a bar. I don't go to open bar parties. I don't go to any of that stuff. And one of the other massive shifts for me was I learned about the concept that if I'm not taking care of myself, I can't do anything else well. It has to start with taking care of yourself. So I, like my day has to start with workout and with, with exercise. So I'm a, I'm a single dad. My daughter is just turned eight. And if I want to get her to school on time, I'm proud of the fact that we've not been late once this year. If I want to get her to school on time by 8.30, we have to leave at 8. If we have to leave at 8, that means she has to be up by 6.45. She can get dressed, have breakfast, whatever. If she has to be up by 6.45, that means I have to start making her breakfast at 6.30. If, she, if I have to start making breakfast at 6.30, that means I have to be showered and dressed by 6.20 or whatever, or 6 o'clock so I can have my coffee. I work backwards, and what that means is I get up around 3.45 in the morning. So I can get an hour and a half on the Peloton, or I can run, or I can do, I can lift weights, or I work out with my trainer remotely via FaceTime. And if I don't do that, I'm simply not as good of a person, not as good of a dad, not as good of a consultant, whatever, as I could be. And it's funny because I get these questions. My daughter goes down at eight o'clock 
right? And everyone's like, oh, I wish I could get up at 3.45 in the morning. That's so, I don't know how you do that. I'm like, well, I go to bed at 8.30, right? And they're like, oh, I could never, I could never do that. I don't know how you do that. I'm like, I go to bed at 8.30, right? And they're like, well, and you're up at 3.45. Are you, are, are you a farmer? You know, <laughs> they don't really understand. But for me, it works, right? And, and it's like, oh, I wish I could do that. I'm like, you can, you just choose not to. I see that you liked you liked a picture of a of, of a guy you went to second grade with. You liked a picture of his car on Facebook at 2 a.m. Maybe if you weren't doing that, you know, you were like, I don't know, sleeping, you could get up that early. And so at the end of the day, it just comes down to priorities and choices, man. Yeah. Well, it's like tuning in to, like us say, your, your superpower, being able to, to, to do auto-tune into the ADHD allows you to unlock, you know, more productivity, right? So if you knew that you had this same tool set back when you were in college, and then going into AOL, would you have done anything differently? You know, everyone says, oh, if you knew this, what would you have done differently in your life? I don't really think I would have done anything differently. I'm going to shut the hell up a little more, but I don't think I would have done anything differently because everything I've done has led me to this very moment, sitting in this very chair with my dog underneath me, underneath my, my desk. I'm very happy. I'm very fortunate. So I think that all the mistakes and all the screw-ups and everything I've done has led me to this point. Something else Peter attributes to his ADHD is his love, more like passion, for skydiving. He says the unparalleled rush he gets from jumping out of an airplane is better than any drug he could take. In fact, he's even been known to use it as a drug to help his ability to hyperfocus. If you can jump out of a plane multiple times in a day and live, <laughs> ain't no client problem big enough that even comes close to that. I think that one of the things I love about skydiving, it is the ultimate reboot. I can't get back into the plane. I can't stop and redo it. I will either make the decision to live or I'll make the decision to die. In those 60 seconds, 45 seconds to 60 seconds of free fall, life doesn't get simpler. It will never get simpler than those 45 to 60 seconds of free fall. I will either open my parachute or I won't. And fortunately, every time I've decided to open my parachute and I'll probably keep doing that. But you never see a scud ever land with a frown. I couldn't be sad or mad or angry if I wanted to when I land because every single drop of dopamine, adrenaline, and serotonin in my body is emptied into my brain during those 45 seconds of free fall, primarily to keep me alive. Dopamine for focus, serotonin for awareness, adrenaline for acuity, and agileness. And so for me, there is no better release. I've jumped, when I have writer's block, I'll go up to the drop zone and I'll do a jump. How many jumps have you made? I just, I have just, oh, just under 500. I haven't jumped in a, a little over a year. My last jump was over the pyramids of Giza in Egypt. Wow. 500 jumps. And then how high are you when you jump? What's the elevation? The average jump is 13,500 feet. My highest jump was 26,000 with supplemental oxygen. Yeah, and I'm usually flying between uh, 14 and 20, so I'm not jumping. Yeah, you're the ones 20. we have to look. With, you're the ones we have to look for when we open the door. We we have to scan <laughs> the quadrants and look for you. So that's amazing. I want to talk a little bit more about have you made that literally the jump from all these other things you've done, the Geek Factory, you know, entrepreneurship, and now you know leading and coaching, uh, you know, through Shankman Minds and and also through your podcast, which is really focused around ADHD, but 
I've learned so much when I listen to that podcast. How do you imagine this whole ecosystem of all things Shankman? A lot of what I do is really connected, right? Everything is really kind of connected. The concept of, of customer experience, right? And the concept of customer service, that's kind of connected to when it comes to ADHD. It's about putting in best practices in everything you do, right? The ADHD is connected in that companies are hiring me to come in now and help make their, come into their, their companies and make their companies more neurodiverse friendly, because we're starting to understand that 20% of the workforce is going to be neurodiverse uh, in the next 10 years. So everything really does sort of connect. I find that all I'm really doing at the end of every day, all I'm really doing is I'm telling stories about things I love. And I am so ridiculously blessed that I get paid to tell stories about things I love. And that is literally what I do. And I get these incredible opportunities to do that. So what are the things that you love that you like to talk about? I like figuring out ways to help people do better. The bar is so ridiculously low in virtually everything. I mean, the fact that you knew that I grew up as an only child in the city puts you probably in the top 1% of podcast interviews I've ever done. I've done thousands. And it's not because you're so awesome. It's not that you're not awesome. You obviously are awesome. But you did the most basic of research, which is more than the majority of people out there do. You actually took the time to learn about where I grew up and how I grew up. And holy shit, that you heard how excited I said. I said someone did their homework. That blew me away because people don't do it. And that's pretty much exactly where we are. I don't need people to be awesome. I need them to suck slightly less. And so if I can help you suck slightly less, you'll win all the things. If people stopped asking questions, you know, typically we listen, you know, we respond, we don't listen, right? But going back to the neurodiversity and like, what do companies need to do to hire the Peter Shankmans of the future to ensure that the barriers are broken and that there is this acceptance, not exposure? expectance again, right? What do companies need to do? And are you helping these companies help shape this understanding? I'm helping companies to understand that if they want to hire the best people, they have to treat the best people the way they want to be treated. And this also works in terms of customers as well. I had a big fast food chain come in. I, I was invited in to talk to them about neurodiversity and, and how, to, how to best reach neurodiverse audience. And um, I said, well, let's go to one of your restaurants. We went to one of your restaurants and I walked in and it's a giant menu flashing above the place where you place your order. 130 different items, and they're all in neon colors. And every 15 seconds, there's an ad that runs across the screen and interrupts you're looking at the menu. And it's still 130 items. And I wanted to blow my brains out. And it was the worst experience of my life. And I, I had to literally, literally leave the restaurant. I'm like, this is not okay by any stretch of the imagination. And I said, let's go down the street. I want to show you In-N-Out Burger. And we walked in an out Burger. And you know what In-N-Out Burger's menu is? Hamburger, cheeseburger, fries, shake. That's it. Right? I'm like, I'm home. Right? Don't make it harder for people to give you their money. Right? Listen to your audience. Understand what they want. And, and, and you know, talk about choice overload. Jesus Christ. 130 items on a neon flashing board with advertisements every 15 seconds. In what hell dystopian nightmare is that okay? It's like Las Vegas at 2 a.m., right? Oh, dude, not even kidding. <laughs> it's horrible. So, Peter, obviously, this is a, a new challenge for businesses. What kind of goals are you helping companies set for themselves? Yeah, I mean, the, the goal really is, in terms of hiring, the goal is to understand what the neurodiverse person needs, right? And it's to, to teach companies how to be more understanding, how to listen to themselves better, how to learn about their employees and, and you know, find out what they want. And because, strangely enough, the pandemic has actually helped that tremendously because, you know, companies 
were always afraid to take that work from home breach and sort of breach that barrier. And now they've done it. And they're like, well, shit, we didn't die. Let's talk about the podcast. How did you build your audience? Well, the podcast started in 2016. So I think, I think podcasts were pretty mainstream by then. But to create an audience, you have to give the audience what they want. And so for me, I was able to write a best-selling book, like literally a number one on Amazon book called Faster Than Normal. And I was one of the first people to ever say, hey, by the way, you're not diagnosed with ADHD, you're gifted with it. And you're not broken, you're amazing. And that spread like wildfire because if someone had told me that in high school, it might have changed my whole life. And so being able to tell kids that and tell adults that, more adults are getting diagnosed with ADHD now because they're taking their kids to the doctor. Kids getting diagnosed and parents saying, well, shit, that sounds like me, right? And so being able to explain that to parents and, hey, hey, this is not the end of the world, that immediately blew up. And like most things, it was word of mouth. People would hear the podcast. I'd speak about it. I'd mention it. In every speech I give, whether it's customer experience, whatever, I always talk about my ADHD. And I, I mentioned I have a podcast, you know, and it, yeah, it just grew by word of mouth. We get about twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000 a week. And, you know, again, I'm not doing I'm not trying to monetize it. I've had a couple of advertisers, but primarily I just, I do it because it's a nice way to, yeah. I'm a big believer in helping people. If you've had any success in your life, you have to send the elevator back down. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. So what can we expect from you next, Peter? Are you getting back on the road? I'm speaking in person for the first time since March of 2020. I'm speaking in person on a stage in Austin, Texas on Friday. Oh my God, you have no idea how excited I am. It's a digital life insurance conference. If you told me I'd be excited about a digital life insurance conference, I would have thought you were crazy, but I cannot. I I'm, swear to God, I'm going to drop a molly and go to town. I'm so excited about this. It's going to be incredible. And then I have, I'm speaking in South Africa in June. I'm speaking in Dubai in July. So it's starting to come back and hopefully a little better than before. So anticipate another business spawning out of these, these trips? Well, either another business or I'm definitely going to write a couple more books. I want to do a follow-up to Fast the Normal. And also, I finally I regained the rights to Zombie Loyalists, which is my fourth book. And so I'm, I think I'm going to update that for a post-COVID world as well. So, Peter, you spent so much of your career advising other people. What about you? What's the best advice you've been given? Basically, everything I have, all the success I've had, has come from the fact that I, I listen. I had an ex-girlfriend once who, who, who's from the South, and her mom was a very, very Southern proper woman who, who would end every sentence with the word shug. And uh, one of the lines that she said that I kept, and I'll always remember, is I must have been spouting off about something, and, and she said, you know, Shug, the good Lord gave us two ears and one mouth so we could listen twice as much as we talk. And it was sort of this incredibly condescending way of telling me to shut the fuck up, but it, it really did its job. And I've always remembered that. Listen twice as much as you talk. And, you know, that's what I do now. I mean, if you're on an airplane next to me, unless, unless you fake your death, I don't know everything about you by the time we land, because I'm just going to let you talk. That was Peter Shankman. Among his many endeavors, Peter has also jumped into the world of cryptocurrency, launching one of his very own called Shankbucks. Not surprisingly, they're off to a fast start. They opened at 11 cents about four months ago, and today they're up to around $7 a piece. If you want to buy any Shankbucks of your own, you can head to rally.io and set up your free account. Thank you for joining the first episode of Before It Happened. Tune in every week for new episodes, new guests, and new stories from other visionaries who are changing our lives. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood, and all episodes are written and developed by Jack Buer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab. 
Make sure to subscribe to Before It Happened wherever you listen to podcasts.